0: Each week we've been featuring another voice, an imaginary voice, but a voice that surely connects with um, a lived experience that we're all facing in a bizarre season like this. Well, we're going to add one more um, to a setting in which many of us perhaps are about to face in the coming days, perhaps if we get together with anybody.
1: this Christmas. This Christmas is gonna be special. We're really gonna celebrate Jesus this year. Don't we need to? We've got the ham on order and they can even bring it outside to the car. We've got the napkins, advent candles, the decorations. We've got eight total people invited. I love them all so much. Uncle Clive, my sister Megan, her kids and husband, and Aunt Sally. Everybody's bringing something to eat, and I can make some brownies hot out of the oven. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. We could have the kids' table over there. There are six places for the adults to sit. My husband at one end, me at the other. Hmm. It's Megan. I hope she's still bringing the... Is Clive coming? I see him posting without a mask and groups all the time. Is he coming? <laughs> Is Clive coming? Yes, he's coming. He's your uncle. It's Christmas dinner. What do you think, Megan? Okay. What if I had them sit diagonally away from each other, not close? They'd probably like that anyway, even if it wasn't COVID quarantine. And the kid's table could be on the far side away from him, too. Let me get a tape measure. Okay. Okay. That could work. That could work. It's going to be great. Everybody will be happy. I'm not coming if he's coming? Ugh! What does she expect me to do, disinvite my uncle? He'd be all alone for Christmas. You know, I don't have to worry about this right now. This dinner is totally about celebrating Jesus no matter who comes. It's Christmas dinner! We're just gonna be happy celebrating Jesus and to heck with everything else. I might even put up a sign that says, ooh, no talking about the election. I'll make my husband be the conversation, please, at the dinner table. He'd like that. No talking about COVID, he'd say. (laughs) It's gonna be great. It's gonna (sighs) be great. The kids are tired. We're all tired. I think we're just gonna stay home. I hadn't even written her back yet. Ugh! I just. Is this gonna be great? Will it really? Should I even bother to light these darn Advent candles?
0: Everything is going to be different this Christmas. And for so many people, that is the utmost disappointment, if not an utter frustration and an exasperating feeling. And you just want to squint your eyes and, and, and clench your fists and wish it would all be different. And in moments like that, sometimes all you can do is just sort of look up. You just need to look up. And tomorrow, if the weather is kind and the clouds will break, you will have a reason to look up a reason that no one has had a reason to do in over 800 years. Jupiter, is 484 million miles from the Earth. It could contain 1,000 of our Earths. Saturn is 1 billion miles from Earth and could contain like almost 750 of our Earths. Jupiter and Saturn that far away and that large will be from our perspective almost looking as if they are one single luminous celestial object. They will be in a complete convergence that has not been seen that close together in this kind of night sky in over 800 years. And it'll be a long time before you could see it again. And so tomorrow night, if you have the chance to go outside a little after sunset and you look southwest and you see those two luminous objects aligned perfectly together in one bright luminous object, this is what you should do. You should light a firecracker, um, raise a glass, pray a prayer, You should adore the moment because the next time that happens you will be dust dust it will be an alignment that has not been in a very long time and it will be a brilliant luminous picture in nine verses you wonder where i'm going with this right in nine verses of luke chapter 17 In just nine verses in this most ancient and obscure text that's going to talk about things that you just don't talk about ordinarily, in those nine verses, you are going to see the perfect alignment in in full uh, luminous brilliance, the very essence of the gospel, in a setting and in a storyline that you would think would never reveal that, but it will. And what it's going to do is to reveal to us three brilliant truths that when seen together show us the brilliance of the gospel— Three truths. One, our gravest plight. Two, our deepest need. And three, our greatest good. You see those three things together, you'll see the gospel in its all its brilliance. So let's listen to nine verses in Luke 17 for our gravest plight, our deepest need, and our greatest good. Our central text for today is found in Luke 17, beginning in verse 11. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by ten lepers who stood at a distance and lifted up their voices, saying, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. When he saw them, he said to them, Go and show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed.
1: Then one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back praising God with a loud voice, and he fell on his face at Jesus' feet, giving him thanks. Now he was a Samaritan. Then Jesus answered, were not 10 cleansed? Where are the nine? Was no one found to return and give praise to God except this foreigner? And he said to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. This is the word of the Lord.
0: The first thing Luke wants us to reckon with is the setting, that Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. Not because Jerusalem is lovely this time of year, but because he's going to die there. And it mentions that he is also on his way to Jerusalem in a roundabout fashion, going through the areas of Galilee and Samaria. And one night, apparently, he he is about to enter into a village, and there on the outskirts of town, he hears a cry of desperation. It's from a cry of ten lepers those afflicted with leprosy. Now, in the Old Testament, the word for leprosy was sort of a catch-all term. It could refer to any number of skin diseases including what we know today as Hansen's disease true leprosy where where um, the flesh begins to deteriorate and you can no longer feel pain in those regions and so it's a it's a difficult um, um, remedy a difficult uh, treatment for that kind of disease but in that day leprosy could refer to any number of skin diseases it could even refer to to dry rot in your home or some sort of mold anything that could create Um, Affliction or disease for an individual or a family, and there's a whole host of Old Testament laws in Leviticus in 13 and 14 that speaks of not only how to diagnose the leprosy, but what the treatment for it will be, and then finally, what would what would be required in order to verify that the leprosy was gone. To us, it is an obscure. Um, unfamiliar uh, disease. It's places, it's a disease that happens elsewhere. You and I are familiar with skin diseases like dermatitis and psoriasis and eczema and all those things are there and this is what's in view in some form or fashion. But what's happening right now, even though it is foreign to us, even though leprosy is something you and I rarely talk about, it resonates what we hear with here. Because the, the, the word of phrase that uh, Luke chooses to describe what's going on in that moment is, is rather resonant with our condition because it speaks of the lepers calling out to Jesus at a distance. At a distance. They're in this self imposed, law required quarantine, they are in a social distance for who knows how long they've been there and they're doing that to mitigate the spread but also to fulfill the law and they're crying out but they're but they're not merely crying out for desire that Jesus would come and attend to their affliction they're crying out because they are at a distance from their own people that that this what they've lost is their community as well as their ability to to function as they would and that if that ain't familiar, I don't know what is. We are familiar with that cry of desperation. No, we're not suffering from leprosy, and even if we have not contracted the virus, have we not felt, have we not seen, have we not heard of stories where this this, this feeling of this gnawing distance from everything that is good, from things that we took for granted, from things that were familiar to us, from things that we counted on and relied upon, those things are now at a distance and we feel it and that is that is our plight as surely as it was their plight even in a different context and in that situation there are too many stories that we are familiar with in which even if you're experiencing the virus what compounds the experience of it is being at a distance from anything that that you find pleasurable and good and that world is true for so many and yet in, in some ways it is, it is true for even more, even if, you haven't even, even if you haven't contracted the virus or even had any bout with it, whether it's been a mild case or a severe case, the world has been brought to the brink for all sorts of reasons. There's a, a website that you can go to these days, it's called the Loneliness Project. It's a a Canadian website, and you can see that in the resource page for the sermon this weekend. And every week they publish another anonymous story, another anonymous true story of someone who is grappling with the distance that they feel and the reasons that they're feeling it, and the last time they ever felt close. And that is the story that is many people's story, and it is why they are crying out. And that distance is true, and that is the, the plight that the lepers are feeling, and in some ways it is our plight, but... If you allow me to, to press the whole idea of distance just a little bit further, uh, even a little bit more metaphorically there. There is, a, there is a form of feeling at a distance from something that is good that is perhaps uh, felt by even more people on the earth than those that are isolated or who are socially distanced for any number of reasons. And it's something to which none of us are immune. And what I'm referring to is, is actually an article that I have shared with you a couple of times since I've been with you over the last three and a half years. It's been about 18 months since I've shared it with you before, so I think we're overdue, but it's an essay that that C.S. Lewis wrote entitled The Inner Ring, and what he refers to is an experience that too many of us have of feeling, as it were, on the outside looking in that there is something that we all feel that we need to have, that we want to have, but which seems so remote to us, so much at a distance from us, and we long to be there. And he calls it the inner ring, and he, and he refers it to it in this way. In many men's lives, at all periods between infancy and extreme old age, one of the most dominant elements is the desire to be inside the local ring, the terror of being left outside. And the inner ring can refer to any number of things a group you're in, a, a guild you want to be a part of, um, a set of people that you esteem, that you wish that they welcomed you into it. Kids, uh, you are familiar with this. You you know about the in-group. You know who's in and who's not, and and perhaps you you would long to be part of that group, or perhaps there's this slight hollow feeling that you're not part of that group, or if you're in that in-group that everybody wishes they could be part of that group. Sometimes you you wonder how long you'll stay in it, or, or maybe what sacrifices you're going to need to make to, to remain in it. That's that's an inner ring. The in-group is an inner ring. And before you think I'm picking on you, realize uh, Clive Staples Lewis is mostly talking to your parents. He's talking to adults because they too know what it's like to long to be part of some group, some organization, some cut above that would comport with their resume or their, what vacations they take or what privileges they have. And they all know about it. And they all maybe wish to be part of one. And then if they're not in one, they wish they could be. And if they are in one, they wonder how long they'll stay there. And that's why C.S. Lewis warns in that same essay, unless you take measures to prevent it, this desire is going to be one of the chief motives of your whole life. From the first day on which you enter your profession until the day when you're too old to care. What is your inner ring? What are you on the outside looking in are? What are you wishing that you could be a part of? And then you feel in some ways, maybe slightly what a leper feels like about wanting to be back and part of the center of community. I can't answer that question for you, but I know that it's something to which so many of us are susceptible. And even though C.S. Lewis is talking about primarily a question about vocation, it applies to any domain of our existence. And when we When we admit that longing, we realize that the the deepest metaphor we can feel is that we're at a distance from something that we know not what it is. We just know it's not here. And we're at a distance from it and from any peace that we think we might have it. That's our plight. And though uh, leprosy may apply to no one within earshot of this sermon, we know what it's like to feel at a distance and we realize that that really is at the core of all our trouble. This shared plight of being at a distance from what is good. And, and the challenge of reckoning with that, of seeing that in the bright sky above us, is that it's natural to us to feel that distance. It's natural, but it also feels naturally insurmountable. And the question is, if we can't shake that feeling of distance without help, what to do? Well, that gets us to, I think, the second bright object in the sky that leads us to a luminous convergence of what is the gospel. And I think it comes from around the middle of the passage, and it deals with what the lepers are really crying out for. Jesus clearly in in the minds and the desperate cries of the lepers has a reputation for working wonders That's why they are calling out to him as master and and what they are begging from him is one thing They say to him, Jesus master have mercy on us They are afflicted in body They are deprived of community They are constrained by more things that are out of their control And therefore, all they can do is do one thing. To beg him for mercy. To give to them what they cannot give to themselves. And it is very possible that in these last nine months together, that there's been at least one moment in those nine months where you have found yourself crying out to the Lord, have mercy on me. For whatever reason. uh, You know, pick pick any part of your plight. Of, of distance, where, wherever you have felt, either either in sickness or, or loss of income or uh, relationships or broken relationships or partisanship or the polarization that this country is both experienced and is still experiencing, and in all those moments, some of those things were years in the making, and 2020 was just sort of like pouring in accelerant on it, but in that moment, you were crying out for mercy and and even that 's true of even the storylines the importance of mercy is even found in the storylines that we 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 hear from us in which there was a flourishing experience some of you have actually been able to find great um joy in this season and 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 loss was not your experience you've actually been able to gain and in moments like that surely your resourcefulness was key Your ability to adapt in this season was key, and yet there were plenty of other people in this world who are just as resourceful as you might have been, and yet they were just in the wrong place at the wrong time, and it just didn't fall that way for them. And so in either situation, whether your resourcefulness led to nothing or your resourcefulness led to a life of flourishing, what we all discover here is if we're not in need of it, we're the beneficiaries of it, and that is mercy, mercy all the way down. Uh, Things that we might have done to improve our chances, but things, there were so many things outside of our control that we had no place or could call on. And still, it's a mercy where we are. And for that, we give thanks. And in this middle of the passage, what we find is that Jesus has mercy all the way down to. And that that mercy is our deepest need. And Luke is, is portraying that in these, in these lepers because what their deepest need is is what Jesus' deepest impulse to give is, and that's mercy. He, he doesn't lay hands on them. He doesn't give a word of command. He, he doesn't wave his hand. He just says, go show yourself to the priests. Why, why would he say that? Because, like I referred to earlier, you go to Leviticus 13 or Leviticus 14, you're going to hear, what does it take to be let out of quarantine in that moment? What does it take to no longer have to social distance because you have leprosy? You go to the priest, he analyzes the problem, he looks at your wounds and he says, yep, you're healed, you may jump out of quarantine. Woohoo! That's why he'd go. And in that mercy, and in that moment, he was like being a dermatologist to verify that you were clean And so Jesus says that to the 10 lepers. And as the text says, they go along their way. They follow his advice. They head on their way to the temple in Jerusalem. And boom, along the way, bang, they're healed. They're healed. And in that moment, we see not only Jesus's willingness to show mercy, but his power for it. But I think we're meant to see something more about mercy, more than just that Jesus has the power to show mercy. And I take that, comment from where we have in this moment something of a surprise, of a, a big reveal. The, the beginning of the passage, sort of at a, at a 30,000 foot view, we're, we're looking at Jerusalem, we're hovering with our drone over Galilee and Samaria, and then we, we come into a narrower shot, and we're looking at 10 lepers, and then eventually Luke has us do this, this narrow, this tight shot on one of them. Uh, one that you did not expect, and and what that one is, is somebody that we don't even know, is nameless and as faceless as the other ten lepers. The ten head off, but one stops, pauses, reflects, turns back. Turns back and heads back to Jesus and with a loud voice praising God does something that we've seen at least one person do in every single text we've been listening to at Advent. He bows He bows in adoration of Jesus. He adores Jesus in that moment. He can't not adore Jesus for what God has done through Jesus in that moment. And who is this one? Who is this person who has chosen to act as he was? In every single culture on earth, there is, to borrow a phrase, the repugnant cultural other. Uh, a class, a kind of people that people find it easy and justifiable to write them off, to deride them, to avoid them at all costs. There's the, they're just somebody that you don't deal with, that you, you keep your distance from. Every culture has one. There's in-groups and then there are out-groups and every culture has them. Well, this one is a card-carrying member of the out-group of that day. This one is a Samaritan. And there's a reason that Jesus highlights Samaritans so often. You, you and I, we think of the word Samaritan in an affirmative way. We think of someone who is generous and who is kind and who shows mercy. That's what a Samaritan is. But in that day, obviously, you're the outgroup. Uh, you are persona non grata among Jews. And so here in this moment, what Jesus is out to show us by, by focusing in on showing mercy to the Samaritan is that Jesus' mercy is not only powerful, it's boundless. That the religious outsider, the one whom nobody expected to be the one to turn around, he's the one adoring the feet of Jesus, adoring the mercy of Jesus. And that boundless picture of mercy is our deepest need To know that there is a mercy that might come to us that is not tied to our background, to our ethnicity, to our privilege or lack thereof. It is not tied to what we know or what we don't know. It is not tied to what we have done or what we have not done. It is not tied to whether we have been good or whether we've been wicked. There is a mercy that reaches down, that is powerful, that comes to us, that is boundless. And we see that shown in full view with all vividness in the mercy and the response of the one who is a Samaritan. But I think what the Samaritan has to show us is something, one more thing. Uh, not only that our deepest need is in mercy, but something more. Because I would like to argue that mercy, though it is its own blessing, is its own good It actually has a greater end. There's a point to mercy, and we're going to see that through the lens of the Samaritan again. See, what the leper understands about his greatest need and what Luke, I think, is bringing to the surface that we might understand our greatest need is something that Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood rather well. For lots of reasons and interestingly enough at a time of advent he said this a prison cell in which one waits hopes and is completely dependent on the fact that the door of freedom has to be opened from the outside is not a bad picture of advent to celebrate advent is it's not about candles it's not about poinsettias it's it's about reckoning with the fact that we are all in some ways locked in To a predicament that we cannot unlock ourselves from. And we need someone to come from the outside to unlock the door for us. With the Samaritan there bowing before Jesus in adoration. Adoring him for his gratitude. But for something more than that, Jesus is struck He is struck by how this scene has unfolded and and he makes the fact that he is struck quite known by the kinds of questions he asks, the rhetorical questions like saying, wait a minute, there were 10 who were healed. Why has only one come back? To show forth praise to God. And secondly, why is this one who is the one least likely to be expected to come back? It's a Samaritan for goodness sake. The one whom had great animosity for those who were Jews. Why is he the one coming and showing adoration? Why is the religious outsider demonstrating an apparently greater acquaintance with the mercies and power of God than those other ones who probably were Jewish that are going to the temple? Why this? Why is he showing his adoration? And, and if you pause with it for just a minute, you might think to yourself, no, wait a minute, is, is Jesus demanding that somebody come and say thanks to him? Is he like requiring it? Is he like some of our in-laws who insist on everybody sending out the thank you cards? Is that it? Well, does that sound like Jesus, one who would demand it to be thanked for what he had done? Does that sound like him? Not really. So what is he driving at? what's he getting at here in bringing up the fact that it's only this Samaritan who has come to bow at his feet in in loud praise to God adoring Jesus for what he has done. And I think where Jesus is driving at is the last words of the passage. Jesus looks at the Samaritan and says to him, rise and go your way. Your faith has made you well. And we all glee in in satisfaction at the way the story has come but we also should probably be asking ourselves the question wait a minute why does he say that to the samaritan the other nine were healed too they're also well and and they demonstrated at least a little faith to take jesus on his word because they're all headed off to the temple to show themselves to the priest so they they too had a little faith and and they too were cleansed they too are well so why is jesus stating the obvious Or is he being redundant? What's at work there? Unless Jesus means something a little more for this Samaritan when he says, Your faith has made you well. The word there for well is the same word that we refer to when we say the word saved. And in this moment of adoring the Lord, of adoring Jesus, Jesus is out to say that gratitude is. It has its place. It's commanded. It ought to be done in all circumstances. And yet there is something even greater than gratitude for mercies. And the one thing that is greater than even gratitude for mercy shown is adoration of the one who the one who grants the mercy. Adoration of the one, knowing the one who not only heals you physically, but has something more for you in that. In knowing him in knowing him and in treasuring him and therefore that faith in who Jesus is has something more for that Samaritan in that moment than even the physical healing that he rendered for the rest and that friends is our greatest good not simply to be the beneficiaries of mercy but to know the one who is the author and origin of all mercy that's the gospel that's our greatest good That's what Advent is celebrating. And that's where we're going. Because why does that matter? I'll tell you why it matters that adoration is even greater than gratitude. Because even if in these days you are isolated and longing for connection, there is a kindness that is never separate from you. Even if there is part of you that finds yourself longing to be part of that inner ring, and sometimes you obsess over it so much because you just want that because you'll finally think you've arrived. The only thing that will ever displace that desire to be part of that inner ring is adoration of the one who is the author and refinisher of your faith. But the reason adoration most matters is that even if you're sick and you die, He is with you. And therefore, He is worthy of our adoration. So, that's the nature of Adoration. And that is our greatest good. And that, then therefore, leaves us with the really simple question about a takeaway. What, what do we do with this? How do we begin to adore? You know what? I want to remind you of something I said in week one. Something also from C.S. Lewis, who said this, We shall not be able to adore God on the highest occasions if we have learned no habit of doing so on the lowest At best, our faith and reason will tell us that he is adorable, but we shall not have found him so, not have tasted and seen. Any patch of sunlight in a wood will show you something about the sun, which you could never get from reading books on astronomy. These pure and spontaneous pleasures are patches of Godlight in the woods of our experience. Brothers and sisters, children and old folks, I hope that you would go out tomorrow night And I hope that you would adore the luminous object that may be above our sky if the clouds will part. And I hope that you will allow that moment of adoration to be something that leads you to adore the one who did something for you. Jupiter and Saturn are far. But as Paul tells us, Jesus preached good news to those who were near and those who were far off, that he might bring them to the Lord. And Jesus himself Like these lepers who found themselves outside the gate, outside the city, outside the community, outside welcome. It was Jesus who himself allowed himself to be taken outside a gate to die for us that we might be welcomed in. He becomes as we are and enters into our struggle that we might know his glory and his goodness. And the one way you might reckon with all of that is to listen to the words of a famous doctor who is a believer. He died in 2003. His name was Dr. Paul Brand, and he was renowned for his treatment on many continents of those who suffer from leprosy. And he said this, I pray that when my time comes, I may not grumble that my body has worn out too soon, but hold on to gratitude that I have been so long at the helm of the most wonderful creation the world has ever known. And look forward to meeting its designer face to face. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Oh, come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord. Amen.